All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I've started the podcast up, and um, I think we're online. It all looks good to me, so I think we're good. So, let's see. I have a couple of announcements just to get rolling to make. So, please, please pay attention because I did the same thing I do every year which is I forget about the staff Christmas luncheon which we have every year it's some kind of weird thing that I so it occurred to me like last week that wait a minute there's a staff Christmas luncheon coming up so my Tuesday class can't meet because though I don't participate in a lot of things like that I do feel like I should go to the Christmas lunch and play the games with the young ones, or at least watch them play. I don't know. So, um, anyway, so we won't have class next week. So, okay, so no class next week. I will be at a Christmas luncheon instead. Um, I would just know that I would rather be here with you guys, honestly, um, talking about the Bible. But we won't won't meet next week. So that will leave then before Christmas, the 13th and the 20th. Now there is a sign-up sheet going around with the red box to bring food or a little money to help out or anything like that for the 20th. So and that's going to circulate also on the 13th. And so the big day that we'll have a little Christmas party that is you know the the overseers and driving force behind sit are the corner gals as they've been known for many many years um right so so we'll have a little bit of fun on the 20th and um i think that what i'm going to do is we're going to finish first corinthians before the end of the year um i'm virtually certain of that and the time that we have left i want to spend talking about how the Christmas we celebrate came to be. Arthur alluded to it in a sermon today. I've talked about it in different forms in various places and different approaches to it, but I'd like, because it is very surprising to people. They're just like dumbfounded when we talk about even the history of Christmas in America. They're just like, what? So um, we'll, we'll use that because I want to wait and start the book of Samuel uh, first and second is one scroll. We'll do both together. Samuel 1, Samuel 2. I want to start that on Tuesday, January 3rd. Okay? And we're going to publicize it and get it out there. And I've, I'm going to be using maps and timelines and some photos of different places in Israel and stuff, um, which I've never been able to do because I never had a screen before when I've done a book like Samuel. So, or even Samuel. Okay, so that's what we're going to do, and that's going to start then on January 3rd. So any questions about all of that? Okay, December 20th, the little party down here. Sign-ups will continue for food, will continue this week, and um, then on the 13th, okay? Um, And in our, our prayers this morning, we want to remember Linda... Manor's sister-in-law Diana who I told you a couple weeks ago she was going into surgery they had found something and it turned out she has a glioblastoma which is a, as you know is a difficult diagnosis they have done the surgery and the surgery went 
Well, right, but there's a lot that lies ahead for her and a lot of anxiety around it. So when I pray to begin the class, we'll also pray for, for Diana, okay? How's it, okay? Um, so let's see. I think that's about it for any announcements I have. I have one. Yes. Okay. So this is kind of part of a second act um, message this morning. Rita Gray, who's a, a member of our class and has been for many, many years, she kind of put together um, a little proposal of having something for second act that would be on a really small group kind of basis. A lot of the events we've had, you know, there's been hundreds of people that have shown up. So Rita came forward and asked if there could be some kind of a day in like a really safe environment like St. Andrews to have a, a game day or card day or chess day or checker day or Rita's open to anything. And tomorrow is the very first one. It's gonna be upstairs in room 131 from one to three. And hopefully it'll be every Wednesday, unless that group decides to not have meet on a certain day, every Wednesday from one to three. And since tomorrow is the first one, it would be great if some people came. I know Vera will be there with her. <laughs> so let me tell the online people. Yes, okay, so, so they can hear you. So so there's a there's there's a game day starting up yes. um, tomorrow yep. in room one thirty one from one to three. Yes. It uh, started by Rita Gray. Yep. It was her idea, and so they're going to play different games and every Wednesday. And so it's going to be great fellowship and great fun. The only game I think that you can't play in there, as far as I know, is horseshoes. Okay, the, the, the building staff would not take kindly to horseshoes in room 131. Pickleball is out. But what is, I don't even know what pickleball is. How many people in here really know what pickleball is all about? Oh my goodness. I have like no idea. I see a little racket thing and stuff. I have no idea what it is. How out of things am I? Wow. And I asked Rita, well, what if somebody just wants to come for the fellowship, but maybe they want to knit or crochet or do something like that while the group is talking and having fun? She said, that was great. So please just. You could come and read a book, probably. It'd be okay with you, right, Rita? Yeah. Sure. But Whatever. It's a, it's been a nice, safe, warm, dry, always. Place. place. Sure. And That's awesome. Nobody has to drive at night. So, anyway. Wednesdays, one to three, room one thirty-one. Just, just remember that. We'll, we'll put it out there every once in a while to remind people. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Patty. Uh -huh. All right. So, would you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we come together on this Wednesday, Tuesday, <laughs> during Advent to um, uh, to study Your Word. We lift up today, uh, Diana Manners, who has received a very difficult diagnosis, difficult surgery, um, recovering now just has to be filled with lots of anxiety and concerns. And we pray that your healing hands will be with her doctors and that she will feel your comfort and peace through all of this. Um, it must be so much to, to, to take on so suddenly, so suddenly. And we pray that your spirit will who we know is with Diana and we know is with us will fill her with um, energy and calm and will fill us with some enthusiasm um, and vigor today as we return to Paul letter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 
All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's where we are. We Last week we finished up chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. So me being a teacher guy, I'm, there's a few things I just want to go back and hammer home again. And if you're sick of me hammering them home, well, too bad. <laughs> because I think these are not things which Christians it takes a lot of time and transformation for Christians to really to really take this and it's just a few points okay so let's just here we go resurrection means bodily it means touchable it means material that is what the word means meant for the Greeks it's what the word means in your Bibles it doesn't mean vaporish it doesn't mean spiritual it doesn't mean ghost-like and if you want to touch stone scripture to use to kind of keep grounding yourself in the materiality of resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection, right? You can use Luke 24 because that's where he comes to the, his disciples and they think he's a ghost and he says, I'm not a ghost, I'm not a ghost, I'm flesh and blood. And he eats the fish in front of them to show them that he is the Jesus they have always known. Transformed, glorified, yes. An immutable, unchangeable, imperishable body, yes, but still Jesus. Who eats fish and stands on floors. Okay, so this is really big because I think there are a lot of quarters, not a lot, there are some quarters worldwide in Christianity, probably principally in Europe and North America, that have, have kind of pushed this idea that resurrection is just kind of a spiritual thought. It's a spiritual idea. But it's that, that's, that's not the biblical idea. And it's not what Paul meant or the readers of Paul would have understood him to mean when he talks about resurrection. Okay? So any questions about this one? Well, you've got to take this one, you've got to put it in there. Okay? So, num number two. This is like Jeopardy or something, I guess. Okay, so Jesus' resurrection is the fundamental proof of all Christian truth claims. In a minute, we're going to look at Acts 17 for just, just, just a moment, just to drive this home. I, I am asked fairly often by Christians here at the church about proofs of God, proofs of God's existence. As if that were the starting point in coming to embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I don't believe it is. Okay? I think that is not the starting point. If you want to talk to somebody about what we claim is true, don't start with trying to prove to them that there is a God. For a couple of reasons. First of all, the furthest you can possibly get with them is the existence of some creator who, who created this and the rest of it. But how can you get to 
a God who comes to a man named Abram and his wife named Sarai and prom makes a promise to them that he's going to give them land, stars, and all the families will be blessed through them. That's a whole other thing, is to get to the God we meet in Scripture, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't think, I know there are different proofs of God. I, I've just, just never found any of them to be totally satisfying. And I think it's the wrong, I've now realized it's the wrong place to start. If somebody wants to ask the question about why do you believe what you believe, this is the place to start. Don't let them trap you into some long philosophical discussion about the existence of God and the various proofs of God in creation and the role of a electromagnetism and all this other stuff that people talk, which is fine, I love talking about that stuff, but it's not really the place. This is the place, the resurrection of Jesus. Because what does Paul say? He says, if this didn't happen, Ugh, we're to be pitied. Why? It's his word, right? His word. We're to be pitied. What a harsh word that is. Do you want to be pitied? Nobody wants to be pitied. Any context, nobody ever wants to be pitied. We're to be pitied because why we've believed a lie. All of this grounded on a lie. Unless what? unless Jesus was resurrected. It's not, it's not grounded on a lie if I can't go through some complicated proof of God's existence like it was a geometry problem. That's not it. This is the claim that underlies every bit of it. For example, turn to Acts 17. Well-known passage, one that Arthur seems to use a lot lately. This is from Paul's second missionary journey. He's traveling down through Macedonia and Greece, and he comes to Athens. And Athens is the home of what? All of the deep thinkers. Right? It's, Greece is the home of Plato and Aristotle and Her Heraclitus and the rest of them. That, I mean, Athens is filled with deep thinking people. And Paul goes to meet with some of these deep-thinking people, these philosophers, and he's going to talk to them in their own terms, their own terms. So look at, oh, let's just hear the whole thing. Why not? Verse 22 of Acts 17. That's where I'm going to start. Paul stood up in the meeting of the um, Areopagus, that's how it's actually pronounced. Weird, huh? Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Why do they have an altar to an unknown God? They don't want to risk missing one. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. It's like the silliness of worshiping an unknown God. Like, what's that all about? And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands 
as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, all the peoples, that means, and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that's very philosophical. Because the Greeks weren't worried about it. Well, wondered, well, where do we get our being? I know we call ourselves human beings, but we're changing from instant to instant. I'm losing brain cells. Every instant that passes, there are fewer active brain cells in my head. I've been told and I've discovered it's true. So, right? So, okay. All right, where do we get our beingness from? Because we, we know we have being. Ah, it's from God who is pure being, whose name is I am. Pure being, I am, is just being. Not becoming anything, I am, being. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he has given proof of this to everyone how by raising him from the dead Jesus Jesus <coughs> Jesus's resurrection is the proof that Paul offers and it's said that of course some sneered some wanted to learn more but of course some people sneer at the, at the idea but this is it this is the ground this is the place to begin. And when you accept the resurrection of Jesus as being true, as something that happened, as something that you could discover if you had a time machine, right? Well, then a lot of other things seem pretty darn possible, don't they? A virgin birth doesn't seem so what? Right? Old Testament. A lot of things that Elijah does doesn't seem so. If you come to embrace the resurrection of Jesus as all Christians it's, it's what we do we have if you can't be like Gerd Lutman quit calling yourself a Christian he's right it's fundamental to being Christian is is the confidence um, that Jesus was actually resurrected okay so Anything more about this one? This is hard because people don't come up to me. They don't stop me in the hallway and say, I'd like to talk to you a minute. How do how, you know how what how do we really know Jesus was resurrected? But they do come up to me and say in the hallway, Well, how how do we know there's a God? Wrong starting point. I've I didn't realize that for a long time, but I realize it now. I realize it now. Because if, if that's how Paul does it, that's probably how I should do it too. Okay, last chance.
Isn't that the Jeopardy music? Yeah, see? I may not know much about pickleball, but I know something about Jeopardy. Is pickleball just sort of outdoor ping pong on a larger scale? That's all it is. Combination of ping pong and tennis. Yeah. Yeah. So I could possibly play pickleball. <laughs> you heard Don. Don says, oh, Scott, you don't stand a chance. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. That's all right. Now, here's the next one. Whoa. Everybody wants to know, well, Scott, if you're saying we're going to be resurrected, what is it going to be like? All we have to go on. As Jesus was raised, so shall we all be raised. That's it. You have a jillion questions for me. I can answer maybe two. <laughs> right? Right? I don't, I, I don't know. You know, Jesus bears his scars. He shows them to Thomas. Will we? What about a person like, oh, who, an Iraq or Afghanistan veteran who lost both legs? Will the legs be restored? I would think so, but does the person want them? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. All I know is that what happened with Jesus will be true of us. That's it. So we can relate this to my still dealing with the New Jerusalem is on, in heaven, uh, on earth. That Jesus was resurrected. Yes. And where did he go? He ended up coming back to he was resurrected. He spent about six weeks here. More than 500 people saw him, right? right. And he lived and ate, right? And, and we know that. Um, we didn't talk in here about John 21, but that's the, that's the story where Jesus is on the seashore and he's making breakfast for everybody when they see him, right? That, that's John's resurrection account. So you get this stream of resurrection accounts of Jesus before he returns to the Father. And the question is, well, where does he go? Right? And for the ancients, he would go up there. Why, why would he go up there? Why would he disappear into the clouds and go upward if you were an ancient person? Because that's, that's where the gods were. Whether you, you could be Greek, and that's, that's Mount Olympus, that's Valhalla, that's heaven, that is, right? We now know more about God's cosmos. Is that really how it is? Or is it more that thinking of it as Jesus returned to the dimension that is God's dimension and will one day completely overwrap our own, okay? And transform this world, the new heavens, the new earth. But the key to your deal, Sharon, is the fact that Jesus needed gravity, right? He could stand, he could walk, he could eat, he could swallow, all of that stuff. All of that stuff. So, which tells you that the ideas I grew up with about heaven were a bit off the mark. And I think much more, much more superficial. I would like to hug my mom again. I'd like to sit down 
and talk with her again, not in some, you know, ghost-like Casper way or whatever it might be up on the clouds. I, I would like to hug her again or hug my granddad again or whatever. That, that to me is far better than what I was taught growing up. And I think it's far more relational. Remember, God is love. God is love. God is a community of three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, a community of three. Each one loves the other. So it's no surprise then that the great commandments are to love God, the vertical, to love others, the horizontal on the cross. So, all right. Well, what's the fullest expression of our relationality with other people? It is material. It is hugging. When I came to work at St. Andrew, I got kidded a lot. Because I'd come out of the corporate world in, and I had gone into the corporate world in the in the late, when? Late 70s. Well, let me tell you, there wasn't a lot of hugging that went on at B.F. Goodrich, okay? So when I came to St. Andrew 20 years ago, more than that, and started working on staff, and Robert Hasley said about himself, uh, the goal of making me a hugger. <laughs> and, and he used to kid me about, they used to kid me about, Oh, Scott's getting vulnerable now. And all these ways of being more relational, right? Because you see, Robert understood that St. Andrew, it's not a business. We should never use business terms to talk about any of this. This is a family. Sure, families have budgets and families have to manage their affairs well and all that kind of stuff, but we're a family and families hug and families feel vulnerable and the rest of it. And so I became much more of a hugger. Now I surprise people on staff sometimes. When they go to shake my hand, I say, oh, no, no, bring it in. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna hug. Or church members, oh, no, br come on, bring it in. We're going to hug, okay? I don't know. <laughs> Robert had a profound influence on me, as I know he did many people. So this is just so... Remember, how, what's the way Paul talks about this? There's a great harvest. Jesus is first, the rest of us will follow. That's the way Paul does it. We lie, we're sitting here today in the middle of the harvest. Now, between the first harvest and the final harvest, as it were. The harvest, we're in the middle of the harvest season, let me put it that way. The first harvest has been reaped, that was Jesus. The second harvest is to come, that will be the rest of us. That's Paul's metaphor for talking about, for helping us to grasp that what is true of Jesus will be true of us. And there's deep theology around this, not just around resurrection, but when you read your New Testaments at a little deeper level, you see how often the New Testament writers want to say to us, you know, what is true of Jesus is true of you. One of the most beautiful ways this is done is when Paul talks about Jesus as the son and then talks about us as adopted sons and daughters alongside Jesus. And he talks about adoption because in adoption there's no difference. When you are adopted, your birth certificate is remade to carry the name of your adopting parent or parents, not your birth parent or parents. 
And it's just a beautiful way to talk about the fact that, that what is true of Jesus is true of us about on so many topics. And that's why in Hebrews, Paul got, um, not Paul, he doesn't write Hebrews, the writer says, you know, we're only, a, we're only a little lower than the angels, whatever exactly that means. What it means to me is we, we have to raise our view of humankind too many times when we screw up, we say, well, I'm just being human. Well, that's not right. When we screw up, we're being less than human. When, we, when we're at our best, we are being more human. Because the most human human is who? Jesus is the most human human. Jesus is the one who lived out the full glory and joy of humanity. Yes. What you say makes tremendous sense, of course. But I was just on the internet today, and England is no longer a Christian nation. Only 48% they said about to be Christian. So a great message. Either people aren't hearing it, aren't listening to it, don't give a damn what. Come on. We seem to be going in the wrong direction. We do say so. But Don's talking about it, the fact that there are countries in the world that are dear to us, let me put it that way, in which Christianity seems to be on the wane, seems to be waning. England, America, and they're only counting people who say they're Christian, regardless of how often they actually participate in anything. And, but that is not true of Christianity in the world writ large. In the world writ large, if you go to Africa and Asia, you'll find Christianity it's exploding and there's fervor and there's excitement. It's we who have to shed some of our attachment to the um, ungodly portions of modernity and, and, and recapture that, right? So this is, this is not a scientific question. Most of the big questions in life, scientists can't get at them. Science is, science is not the only way of knowing something. I, had a, I, I took an entire course on the philosophy of science in the, course, in the course of my doing my PhD. Science is a way of knowing, and it's limited. There's an old image of, uh, that people use now to say, you know, the scientists, they go back to the Big Bang, they go back, they go back as far as they can, and they peer over the hillside, and who do they see sitting there? The rabbis and the priests and the theologians who have been talking about all this stuff that the scientists can't, can't get at. This is, not, this is not something that is amenable to a scientific explanation, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. If you, if you think the only things that are true are knowable by science, that's called scientific materialism, and there isn't room in that for Jesus and resurrection and God and the rest. Because the big questions aren't ones that science can, can get to. But it's just a way, that was the name of the book, A Science, A Way of Knowing. A Way of Knowing. So, 
Any thoughts or questions on this? Any others? Okay, do I have one more? I think I have one more. Okay, so when you go through all of this, what are we left? That we need to trust God's love. We need to trust God with the things we don't understand in this. Most of you know me pretty well, and you know that I'm not a person into taking blind leaps. It's not a blind leap to believe that Jesus was actually resurrected. There is lots of reason to believe that Jesus was resurrected. One of the great, one of the eminent philosophers of our time, Alvin, Pla Alvin Plantiga, wrote several books on this. Is it reasonable, without appealing to the sacredness of it, for Christians to believe that Jesus was resurrected? And he, as well as other pieces of it. And he said yes, and he's right, it is. I can assemble a lot of evidence for a person whose mind is open to the truth of the resurrection. But because God is God and we're not, we are left with countless questions that you wonderful people can't ask me and I can't answer and I jokingly, okay, not jokingly, tell you to put on your index card and carry it up to God so you can ask you know, somebody up there someday or down, actually Sharon, I should say down here someday, shouldn't I? So trust God's love in all this and just pack it with as much goodness as your imagination can create and let scripture give you a larger imagination. Paul writes in the letter to the Romans, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know what the will of God is and what is pleasing and what is good and what is mature. Well, that transformation has to include a transformation of the imagination. Let scripture kind of blow your mind outward. There's a lot of things in there that should that we end up kind of domesticating like, huh? we end up domesticating. It's like, oh, the virgin birth. Oh, um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> what are you telling me? Jesus was resurrected. Happy Easter. Where are the eggs? <laughs> right? That's what we do. I, am I wrong? That is what we do. We've, we, we hear it so, these little bits and pieces so much. Little slogans and things so much that we just get, all the wonder is lost to us. We need to be like a little kid, like a little, what's the right age? A three-year-old, a four-year-old who goes to Disney for the first time and they're just wandering through and their eyes are bugging out of their heads and they just can't believe what they're seeing. Assuming they can see through all the crowds that are gathered there. But anyway, <laughs> sure, we need to, re you know, there's a lot of smart people have written about, you know, the conversion of our imaginations. We're very, we want to be very logical and we want to be, you know, I was talking with a man after um, class on Sunday who wanted to get into Bible study and he had done this and he had done this and he had done this and it was very clear he was a very logical thinker. And so I stopped him after a few minutes. I said, you know, you need to be less systematic about this. 
You need to be less systematic about this. Just take a book of the Bible and just sort of dive in. You don't have to conquer the whole thing from beginning to end. You're not gonna conquer the whole thing. Just be less systematic. I said, is the Bible systematic? There's a grand narrative, but it's a big jumble of stuff, right? Poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom literature, histories, parables, gospels, correspondence, apocalypses. It's all thrown in these 66 books. I said, let's be less systematic. Because that isn't the Bible God gave us. God gave us a book of stories. So enjoy that because you can step into a story in a way you can't step into some systematic, logical presentation of the proof of God's existence. But you can step into it. It's just like the movies. You know, you go to a movie and, and you, get, you get really into the movie and you find yourself in the movie and before you know it, you know, something happens and, and, and the movie maker has you crying. You're so much in the movie. Not that I ever cry at movies. I do actually cry at movies. <laughs> but, but the Bible needs to be the same thing. When we come to the book of Samuel, there are so many really, really, really good stories. It opens with the story of a woman bereft, despondent, grief-stricken, because she can't bear a child. And she goes to this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in prayer. And you can step into that story in a way that you, that you couldn't. If, if it was just all about systematic set of 25 beliefs, God could give us a sheet of paper that big, right? But that's not it. We get this big library instead. So I think, I think the guy actually, I thought he would get upset with me for a minute, but he didn't. So that was good. All right, so just pack, just let your imagination grow. Don't find yourself, don't always find yourself saying, well, how could that be? Find, let yourself say that's amazing. One of the things about Mark's gospel that is so awesome is to, in these encounters with Jesus all the way through Mark's gospel, which is the shortest of all the gospels, the people are always saying what? It was amazing, 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 amazing. I, I should count the number of times the word amazing shows up in Mark's gospel. It's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. <laughs> because Jesus is blowing them away. How often does Jesus blow us away? The resurrection. The, re the resurrection should every time we come to it. So just trust God, trust God's love, pack this resurrection stuff, the afterlife stuff, heavens and earth stuff with as much goodness as you can, as much joy as you can, as much love as you can, um, love of God, love of others as you can, and I think we will be getting ever closer to the right place. Understanding that my love, my imagination is nothing compared to God's. I don't think any of us would ever have come up with the idea of God being born to this peasant girl named Mary. 
Okay, so anything else y'all want to say on resurrection? Anything like that before we go on to chapter 16? We've, I've made you spend a lot of time in chapter 15, but it's important and good. Yes? Okay, I have a question. Sure. Pack it with as much goodness as your imagination can create. Yes. Because we live in between the times. We live in the times in which, you know, the kingdom of God is here and we can do all the things you talked about, right, about yourself. But then we still live in amongst all of these people who aren't listening or are turning away from God, who in the wars and the rest of it. But we will be resurrected into what kind of world? This sort of world, the world we have today? No. Turn to Revelation 21. Let's hear it again. We will, it will not be the world that we live in today. It will be a world that has been redeemed and transformed. Revelation 21. I can't keep, I can't keep, I go back to this all of the time. And understand, it comes from the ground stone of it is Isaiah. Revelation, the beginning of Revelation 21 is grounded in the scroll of Isaiah. So, John says, Then I saw, because he has a vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This world of sin and death and trauma and cancer and geoplastomas and artillery shells falling on nurseries and all the rest of that stuff. That earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, S-E-A, which substitute the word chaos there. Because God is a God of order and for the Israelites, for the Jews, the sea was the symbol of chaos. They were not seafaring people. <laughs> The first verse had passed away and there was no longer any chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What? Sure, for the ancients, heaven is, every reference to heaven for the ancients is going to be straight up. Right? Every reference in your Bible to, to the place where heaven is is going to be straight up because these are all, they're all ancient people. They could be ancient people regardless of where you're, where you're from. There's been no Copernicus or anything yet. So, okay. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. That would be the throne of God saying, What look God's place God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
So that is the bottom line. So when Jesus returns, which happens, by the way, in Revelation 19 and 20, when Jesus returns, the bottom line goes away. The world of sin and death and cancer and the rest of it goes away, leaving only this. We're no longer in between the times. The world, not only have we been redeemed, but the world has been redeemed. That's an important part to get about God's work. We, we, we're inclined to think, particularly because we're very individualistic Americans, that the purpose of all, uh, all of this is about what happens to me. But there's, that is important. But there is a larger work that God is about. Because when the humans rebel against God, they take creation down with them. Childbirth is going to be painful. Agriculture is going to be filled with thorns and thistles and briars and all kinds of stuff. It's going to be really, really hard. So in Romans 8, Paul writes that all creation groans awaiting its redemption. That's what the new heavens and the new earth is about. It's about putting the this whole thing is about reconciling humanity to God and putting the world to rights, making things right. And right does not include cancer. It doesn't include death. It doesn't include mourning, M-O-U-R-N, right? All of, so we are resurrected for what? Not just to go back into this. That would be depressing. Just leave me with Jesus up here. And right, Paul says he's going to be with Christ. How long is going to, in terms of a timeline, how long will Paul be with Christ? As he says in Philippians 2, he's going to be with Christ until this comes. And then Paul will be resurrected, and I will be resurrected, and you will be resurrected, and my mother will be resurrected, and St. Teresa of Avila will be resurrected. To enjoy a world as it was meant to be not a world filled with sin and death and trouble and tears and the rest. You know, that's that. And, and, you know, I know growing up, I was deprived of most of that. I was a church guy, church boy. I learned my Episcopalian catechism at the, at, in the fourth grade. I was an Episcopal acolyte. I, I was acolyte for our bishop when I was about 13. I thought I might be an Episcopal priest at one time when I was about 13. So I got a lot of this stuff when I was little, but I wasn't given it, I, I wasn't taught well. I wasn't taught well. And so I left, I kind of grew up with kind of a cardboard picture of Jesus that I had learned in Sunday school, I grew up with the idea that, well, kind of like, you know, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to die someday, and then it's easy. There's going to be the up escalator, the down escalator. You want the up escalator, not the down escalator. End of story. Period, paragraph. Even though I stood in church every Sunday and said the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, or whichever creed we were using on a given Sunday, nobody explained it. And the reason I think nobody explained it was because they didn't really have anybody explain it to them. 
There are just things that we, that we, that we lost and have been recovered in the last 30 or 40 years because of people like N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes and Ellen Cherry and a lot of others who have done, I think, yeoman's work in trying to help people actually read the Bible again. And I think the, the challenges to Christianity have probably aided that. Because when everybody around you a Christian, well, you just, it's easy just to ignore it all, you know, really. But when the world, when you're feeling more at odds with the world, because the world is increasingly heading somewhere else, well, it can kind of force you back to your roots a little bit. So I don't know. Somebody deeper than I can explain how it happened that we lost, basically lost the belief in the resurrection of the body. It went somewhere. It was never contradicted, really. It just disappeared. So, okay, any other, was that helpful? Very lengthy answer, wasn't it? Yes. The, Well, in Scripture, all the dead are raised. See, this is not just believers. Resurrection is not just about believers. All peoples will be raised. And then there are two books in Revelation 20. One book is the Book of Merit, in which people's lives are sort of read out. And, and then there's the Book of Life. And it's those whose names are found in the Book of Life that will go on to eternity with God in this redeemed world with resurrected bodies and those whose names are not found in the book of life go on to what? Not good. Okay? So your question about a person like Putin, it's interesting. In most of my 20 years here it was always Hitler. What does it say about Vladimir Putin that it's more often than not now Putin is the example? I wonder if he gets that, that he is now replacing Hitler in people's minds as the you know, personification of, of evil. Well, what about him? And so this is where, this is where it's called the, the, the scandal of grace, the scandal of the cross. that can Putin yet come to know Christ? Yes. Is that door ever closed? Christian theology would say no. It's not ever closed. You know, the question you can talk about is whether it closes at our death, and I don't think it even closes then. It does close, right? God won't wait around forever, but it's, it's, um, who was it? There was some woman here in Texas who killed and murdered several people and was, had spent a long time on death row. And she, she ended up being executed. But she said she really became a believer at, while she was in prison, while she was on death row. Um, her life was not spared by the state of Texas. But I'm ready for that to have been genuine on her part. 
I have to. That, that, um, God's grace is expansive. God's love is expansive. God wants everybody to repent and come to God in, in genuine, um, with a genuine love. God wants to keep peop get people in, not, not keep people out. So that would include people like Hitler and Putin. Now, I and don't really envision that happening because I think the Bible's pretty clear. There are people who will shake their hand to God all the way to the end, and I, I would put Putin in that category. But I am loath to close the door of grace too quickly. Maybe I'll put it that way. Okay, so, all right, anything else? Chapter 16, you know, it's actually there. We've been in, I spent so long dragging you through chapter 15, you probably doubted there was actually a chapter 16. <laughs> and, yeah. For totally for grins. Totally for grins. I did Google how many times Mark says amazing. Yes, how many times? 24. 24 times the word amazing shows up in Mark's ah. gospel. Mark's was the first gospel written. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So I have a volume at home that shows you for each English word in the, in the NRSV all the different Greek versions of that idea and where they are in Scripture. It's pretty helpful. So it's kind of like that. 20, the point is, 24 times Mark wants you to understand that people were blown away by Jesus. We need to undomesticate. Jesus and be blown away ourselves. These are the fun conversations. Yeah, this we do. Yeah. So, <laughs> chapter 16, verse 1. Now, right? He's just finished saying, therefore, you know, Jesus is raised. Hallelujah. Therefore, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. So, he changes the subject to this collection that he is making. Now, if you read Paul's letters, you discover that he is collecting money as he goes around. And of course, if you've been through a few stewardship campaigns, you'll, you, you know that there are certain standard portions of 2 Corinthians and stuff that are used around giving and being generous and comparing. I think maybe trying to make people feel a little bit guilty if they're not as generous. Uh, group as others are in Paul's letters, but he is making this collection. Now what's the collection for? That's the important question. What's the money for? Believers well, in what? Believers in Jerusalem. Well, for the believers in Jerusalem. It's going to be sent back to the believers in Jerusalem who are predominantly Jewish, right? 
not Gentile, they're Jewish believers. And why does Paul do it? For the purpose of unity. Unity, unity, unity. He wants these largely Gentile house churches to raise money to send back for the caring of the Jewish Christian poor in Jerusalem as a way of binding the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers together. Because that, for these people, that is a very unnatural place for them to be. The Jews did not, the Jews lived apart from the Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with Gentiles. The more devout they were, you know, you would, of course you would find some Jews who didn't care. They just wanted to, you know, they were very Greekified, I would say. But the, for, for the, more, the more devout Jews were, the less likely you would ever see them in the company of Gentiles, certainly never eating with Gentiles, never sharing eating utensils with Gentiles, because they largely viewed the Gentiles as being unclean. Um, and there are customs like that kind of even in our world. There are Jewish sects which live very much apart from the world and don't really want to have any contact with the outside world any more than they have to, such as the Hasidic Jews. And it comes even to where they will sit on airplanes and stuff next to women, women, next to women and that sort of thing. So, um, Paul's making this collection from place to place to place. It's a, just a good, it's a good practical thing. Because Paul's a pastor. He's trying to bind these communities together, Jew and Gentile believers alike. And he knows that money talks, right? It was as true then as it is now. That's not something else I learned from Robert Hasley and Charles Stokes, you know? All that stuff about giving, it does get to the matter of the heart because there isn't much we value more than our wallets when you get down to it. I always, I always, I did just now. Just now, I thought of the movie Ghost. How many of you have seen the movie Ghost? Okay, so when Whoopi Goldberg is trying to hang on to the check as opposed to like giving it to the nun, Right, and she's, oh, no, 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 this can't, she can't bring it, oh, no, what am I gonna, that's people in their money, right? Yeah, people in their money. So, all right, so he says, now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Paul doesn't expect everybody to contribute the same thing. He knows that there are rich people, not a lot of them, and poor people, many of them. Set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, back to Corinth he means, no collections will have to be made. He doesn't really want to run around and spend his whole time in Corinth collecting love offerings. You know what I mean? You ever been to a place that we're, we're going to have a love offering now? Okay, 
just call it something else, please. You know, yeah. So he's saying that's why the money will all be kept and collected, it'll be set aside. People just bring what they have in their in their envelopes or their piggy banks, and the collection will be put together. Verse three. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So there was going to be a party, a small group of men who will make the journey from Corinth, Greece all the way to Jerusalem with the collection in order to give to the community of believers in Jerusalem for the caring of their poor. It's not the poor in general, but the, the poor in the community of believers in Jerusalem. This is all just very practical, right? Letters of introduction from Paul, so that these men showing up will be accepted um, and, and explain to them what, what Paul has been doing. And then he says in verse 4, if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So it's sort of like Paul is willing, but he doesn't really view it as necessary for him to go. But if the Corinthians think, wow, no, Paul, we really, really need you to go with us, then he will do it. Now, given the fact that they're carrying money <laughs> to give to the people in Jerusalem, I don't think they probably need Paul's help with that. Okay? So, thoughts or questions about that? No, no, this, to our knowledge, no. This is, this is Paul's way of trying to bind the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers together. And, and, and in these places like Corinth and the rest of them, um, uh, there's a much more money than there is in, amongst the Jewish believers in Jerusalem because they've been ostracized, right? They, they, um, they've had a difficult time of it in, in Jerusalem, the believers have, because, I mean, just think back, 20 years before, Paul himself was running around trying to round them up. So even if an uncomfortable peace has settled in, um, they are... they, most of them would not be wealthy. And who, Gentiles would be more comfortable sitting down with Jews than Jews would be comfortable sitting down with Gentiles. So even that need for separation isn't a two-way street. Um, for the Gentiles, the Jews were just weird. They weren't like unclean. But for the Jews, the Gentiles, you see, were like unclean. Okay, so verse 5. So Paul then says, after I go through Macedonia, so he is envisioning a trip up through Macedonia, then southward into Corinth, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. That's how Paul sees things. He, um, in 1 Thessalonians, he is talking about why he hasn't gotten back to, Thess to Thessalonica, and he says, because Satan kept blocking his way. Here it is, I'll, I'll come there, I'll stay, I'd like to stay a longish period of time if the Lord permits. Paul sees himself in the middle of this apocalyptic struggle, this, this cosmic struggle, and, um, and he would like to spend more time, but if it doesn't work out, it's not just because of calendar issues. It's because the Lord is, will be urging him onward. And I get why he wants to spend more time there. He's their pastor. He's their founding pastor. He is the one, he knows they need him. They need him. But he can, oh, he's just one man, so he can only be in one place at one time. He spends 18 months the first time he is in Corinth. And he wants to, so he's made relationships and friendships and knows these people. Doesn't surprise me that he wants to do it in such a way that he can spend a decent amount of time there. And then he says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Um, that's, that's when traveling gets easier in the early summers, particularly on the water. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because the great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So, he does stay on at Ephesus. You know, it's a little bit hard sometimes to reconcile the details in Acts written by Luke with the details in Paul's letters. You know, and, and it would be quick and easy to conclude, well, Luke's just wrong about some things. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of time passing here measured in years, not just not even just months or weeks or days. And all Paul is saying is he is going to continue to stay at Ephesus, where we think, at least on N.T. Wright's timeline, Paul spends like three years there. And there is a lot of work for him to do. He's got a vocation. He's got a place to do that work. And he does have many to oppose him. Now, it's interesting, don't you think, that he says, because a great, deal of, a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me, as if many who oppose him is a reason to stay? Isn't that kind of how it seems? Why would you want to stay someplace where many oppose you? Well, you see, I think for Paul, that's probably part of it. He likes the idea of the challenge, right? He wants the rigor of the, of the debates. But it's sort of like, okay, if, I, if, if I'm part of this cosmic struggle for God to finish implementing the arrival of his kingdom and the defeat of Satan, then I need, I need to be where the battle's being fought. And where's the battle being fought? Well, the battle's being fought when you've got a lot of people who oppose you. 
I need to be at the front line, right? Not disappearing somewhere, you know, 500 miles away. I need to be at the front line. So yeah, I'm going to stay in Ephesus. There's great doors opening for ministry for me. There's a lot of people here who oppose me. This is the front line. This is where I need to be. Okay? Thoughts or questions? He's now going to start talking about some other people. So I think we will stop there at verse 10. And we'll finish that up in two weeks. And we'll begin talking a little, well, that won't take our whole time that I have. And we'll begin talking about Christmas a little bit. And I will endeavor to surprise you. Some of you have heard me do some of this. Some of you haven't. And, um, okay, but we'll do that on the 13th and finish signing up for the big party on the 20th. And we'll have a party on the 20th and we'll talk about Christmas and, um, what, party hardy? Is that what I heard over there? <laughs> yeah, Jim, you're looking like the party hardy kind of guy, buddy. You're, he's ready. So, anything else today before we head out of here and... My wife gives me a ride home. <laughs> I could call Uber again, but I think she's going to give me a ride home. Okay? Yes? Is that the last we hear of the Jerusalem money? Do we know if it ever got there? That's such a good question. I would need to look more closely, because he does ends up making this trip back to Jerusalem, but it's filled with trouble. And I... I think that this collection probably went with others, right? It's just a matter of course. But a good question that I don't really know the answer to. I think that's why I think the answer is, well, it probably did without being explicitly set out there in, in, in Scripture. I hope it did. I hope it did. Okay, anything else? All right, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us understand that it is now Advent and help us to prepare ourselves for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us to see this season and to understand the Incarnation and see it through fresh eyes, eyes that can see with wonder, so that our imaginations are fed and they grow and they, they burst open as we really stop and consider and pray over what you are doing in this world, what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. And we commend to you, Diana Manners and all the other people on our hearts, all the other people we don't even know in this season who need your healing and comfort and strength because those lists are always long, long. And we anticipate a day when that won't be so. So even now, our prayer is come, Lord Jesus, come. All this we pray in his name. Amen.